invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 24. And if you want to put your finger in Acts chapter 1, uh, that will be fine as well. As you turn there, I want to say thank you for such a generous welcome uh, on the part of uh, Dr. Moeller. His words mean a great deal to me. They're thoroughly undeserved, but nevertheless, I am thankful for them. And uh, along with him, I guess I'm prepared to admit to some kind of mutual appreciation society between the two of us. And uh, although I'm not here often, uh, often I think of this place and with a sense of gratitude to God for all kinds of reasons, uh, the faculty, the stance on the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of the Bible, and so on. And I keep meeting uh, students from here all across the country, and, and always without exception, uh, marked by a genuine love for Christ and for the gospel. And that is no small thing in our day. And therefore, when I was invited to come to Buck Run for last evening, and I like that name, Buck Run, um, <clears throat> I've been practicing it. As you can tell, I need to keep practicing it. But uh, uh, when I was invited to come there for, uh, with Herschel, I, I was uh, very happy. And then when this was uh, added as a, as a bonus, uh, then uh, I was humbled by that as well. So uh, last night I, I spoke at a thing. It was they have apparently down there or across there magnificent Mondays, and uh, the people went home, I guess, to judge just how magnificent it really was. And and now here we are for a terrific Tuesday. Yes, <clears throat> and um, it's as terrific as it as it can be. I, I could have left after the singing of How Great Thou Art. I, I said to uh, Dr. Moeller, why don't you just pronounce the benediction? I think we've taken care of everything. It was really quite wonderful. So, with that said, Luke chapter 24 and verse 50. When he, that is Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then just the verses in Luke's second volume, Acts 1, verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand there, here, looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Father, with our Bibles open before us, please help us. Grant to us clarity of thought. Uh, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I'm referring to this morning as a neglected essential, is essentially that. It is, along with the incarnation and with the crucifixion and the resurrection, part of essential Christian doctrine. What the uh, early church fathers referred to as ubique semper ab omnibus. In other words, that which is taught everywhere, always, and by all. It is part of essential Christian orthodoxy. It is rejected in large part by liberal scholarship, 
And it is sadly neglected to a certain degree by those of us who should know better. Some of us, because of our tradition, do not do as well as those of our Anglican brethren, perhaps, who have the benefit of the church calendar to ensure that routinely they are addressing this uh, essential aspect of Christian teaching regarding the ascension. And I don't want to lump you with me, but I looked through my notes of uh, 28 years at Parkside Church, and I was staggered to realize how seldom I have preached on the ascension in those 28 years. I don't think I've neglected the resurrection or the crucifixion or the incarnation because of the opportunities that are presented in the church calendar such as we observe them, but that could not be said regarding the ascension. Augustine was absolutely clear concerning this, and he writes at one point, unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity would have come to nothing, and his passion would have borne no fruit for us, and his most holy resurrection would have been useless. To neglect the ascension is like reading a book, an exciting book, and actually stopping before you get to the final chapter. And if you check, you will discover that the way in which the apostles make reference to the ascension is usually in one continuous movement. So, for example, in Acts 2, when Peter is explaining Uh, all that God has done. He says, and Jesus, this Jesus, God has raised him from the dead. He has risen from the dead. We are witnesses of the fact, and he is exalted at the right hand. He is raised and he is exalted. He doesn't address it in a way that is truncated, but rather in one significant movement. Now, our time is limited this morning, and so we will uh, keep ourselves to this objective— Let us look at the description that we have of it here in the text, and then let us say something concerning the significance of it uh, as we find it. Uh, First of all, we are told that uh, it was when uh, he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany that this happened. So he pinpoints the, the timing, the chronology of it for us. In other words, he wants us to know, as he mentions it in Acts 1, that it was only after a period of 40 days. And in this period of 40 days, Jesus had appeared to his followers, allowing him to address the doubts of Thomas, restoring the brokenhearted Peter. He had taught them, he had banished their fears, and he had prepared them for what it was going to mean for them to live their lives and to exercise their ministry minus his physical presence. They would then be able to recall that on a previous, in a previous conversation, he had told them that it was better for them that he went away. You can only imagine how they tried to process that information. Their best and their dearest friend, the one who was everything to them, would go away. How could it possibly be better for them? And yet, here we have the event recorded. You know, if Jesus had risen from the dead and gone directly into heaven, as I suppose he could have done, then his followers would have been left with unanswered questions. These 40 days, this timing is significant. They couldn't simply drag on. 
and leave the disciples saying to one another, well, I haven't seen Jesus for a little while. Where do you think he is now? There would have to be some decisive and defining moment when just as the skies had been filled with the glory of God in the announcement of the arrival of Christ in his incarnation, so the angelic hosts would be there in order to mark his departure. Now, there are three L's that appear in my text, and I noted them because they sort of helped me navigate, and they may be there for you. Will you look at them? When he had led them out, that's the first L. He led them out. It's a significant little phrase. It's a simple phrase. It's a familiar picture, isn't it? The shepherd leading his sheep. Christ has been leading his followers over these past three years. He has called them to himself. He has led them, and he has taught them. And here he is, a familiar picture unfolding in a familiar place. Jesus is about to ascend from the place to which he had descended to face the trial of the cross. And it is for the disciples not to be left with a picture of the distressed Christ in Gethsemane, nor of a crucified Christ on the cross, nor simply the enigmatic mystery of this empty tomb, but rather they are to be left with a picture of this Christ who is an ascended king. He led them out. Secondly, he lifted up his hands. Now, keep in mind that when Luke begins his gospel, he says, I have researched these things, and I have written a very careful report for you folks so that you, Theophilus, might understand this. You might really get a grasp of it. So there is no padding in Luke's gospel. These phrases are, 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 are of significance. They are the very Word of God brought to us through Luke. He led them out. He lifted up his hands. That is a familiar priestly gesture. That would not have been an unusual scene. And as he lifts up his hands, he blesses them. Luke doesn't tell us what his blessing involved. Perhaps he simply used the words from the Old Testament, the ironic blessing. Perhaps he held up his hands and looked on the fellows, and he said to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, fellows, and give you his peace. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. It's fairly possible, isn't it? And what would that have cost Christ? For he has only come from the place where he had experienced the very reverse of that, that the Father's face was turned from him, that he had cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And out of that forsakenness, where the Father's face is not shining upon him. He comes now to say to his followers, in the light of my triumph over sin and death and hell, may the Lord himself bless you and keep you. He had been forsaken by his Father on the cross. He is about to leave them. They feel perhaps that they are being forsaken. No, no, he says, let me bless you as I go. He led them out. He lifted his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them. He left them. That's the third L. You'll notice that it doesn't say he blessed them, and then he left them. But while he was blessing them, he left them. 
In other words, it was with the blessing of the risen Christ ringing in their ears and flooding their hearts that he took his departure from them and he was taken up into heaven. Taken up into heaven. That's the phrase, isn't it? Now, remember, Jesus had taught them in the upper room discourse, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I was reading just the other day a a hymn that comes across my mind now. Having mentioned it, I hope I can recall the verse. Uh, I think it was written by Baxter, which the opening line of the hymn is, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I live or die. It's a magnificent hymn. And the final stanza, as he anticipates heaven, he says, My knowledge of this life is small. The eye of faith is dim. It is enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. And in the death of John Stott in the last few weeks, I went back to read Stott on heaven. And I was very interested to realize that Stott had very little to say in terms of his articulation and description of things. But essentially, he came to where Baxter was in that hymn. And in the mystery of it all, his confidence was in the promise of Christ, the ascended King. Now, when you go back for coffee this morning, you can talk about these things if you choose. I'm just going to twist your nose a little bit and leave you with the systematic theologians that are so well-learned in this place. Let me just say this in passing. Christ physically went and remains somewhere in the time-space universe. He went and he remains physically somewhere in the time-space universe. That truth has to be held within the context of all of God's revelation. As creator of the universe, as Christ conceived of a virgin, as Christ raised from the dead. And it is that notion which is increasingly challenged. And some of our interest in a preoccupation with a more realized and accessible heaven is in danger of diminishing our understanding of what Jesus actually did here and where he went in his ascension. James S. Stewart, uh, the Presbyterian minister from Edinburgh in the mid-1900s, referred on one occasion to a pseudoscientific attitude which regarded this notion, these things, as imagination and credulity, and those, he says, who held to them as being self-deceived. But then he writes... What this kind of mental, that kind of mental outlook has apparently never begun to grasp is the crucial fact that the real master forces of life are all invisible. That the real master forces of life are all invisible. Hence, it is mystery. So when Paul speaks of the mystery of godliness, he includes this, doesn't he? That Christ appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glory. Therefore, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The fact is that this morning, our eyes are unable to see the spiritual world that is all around us. God has chosen that that would not be our experience. 
and presumably for our good. Now, he led them, he lifted his hands and blessed them, and he left them. When you get to volume 2, to Acts 1, we're told there by Luke that he was taken up in a cloud. Taken up in a cloud. What he's not saying here is that as he went up, it was a relatively nice day, and all of a sudden there was a floating cumulus, and we, we could see him, and then we couldn't see him. Presumably, there's more to this than literally meets the eye. And I need to leave this to you also for your homework. And that is just, just uh, do a little research on clouds. And, and, um, and you'll find it all. It'll take you to Exodus 19 and Sinai. It'll take you to the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. It'll take you to Luke chapter 9 and the Transfiguration. It'll take you again into the realm of mystery as God in his self-disclosure. reveals himself. C.S. Lewis tried to picture this as Jesus being withdrawn through a fold in space, like an actor who, having taken his bow, appears to vanish into a fold in the stage curtain, but he's actually stepping into a gap between the two curtains. This takes us into the realm of the fourth dimension, and uh, again, have fun over coffee. (laughs) That is enough by way of uh, the descriptive uh, nature of the passage. I want just to say a number of things which are important for us concerning the significance of this, the significance of this. And I'm just going to go through this as, as quickly as I can, and then we'll draw it to a close. Essentially, the ascension declares in unequivocal terms, mission completed, mission completed. The the work of redemption, purpose from all of eternity, has now been brought, barring the return of Christ in glory, to its final position. So, first we note that the ascension signified the completion of the work of redemption. It proved the full acceptance of the Father of Christ's single sacrifice for sins. So that the writer to the Hebrews says, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ has entered God's presence for us, and God accepts us in him. He is unlike any of the priests that came before. No need to go to the back of the line again. No need to stand and wait your turn again and again and again. When this priest had offered one sacrifice for sin once and for all, then he sat down. Mission of redemption completed. Secondly, the ascension displayed God's mighty power. It almost goes without saying. Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that they might be able to grasp the magnitude of God's work on their behalf. And he refers to it as his his incomparably great power whereby Christ is raised to this position of authority. And in Peter, he says, Jesus is there far above all rule and authority, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Thirdly, the ascension marked the return of the Lord Jesus to the Father. Now I am going, says Jesus, to him who sent me, a return to the glory that he had known before. But it was a glory that he had never known before as the God-man. Something also for your coffee discussions. Fourthly, the ascension inaugurated the giving of the Holy Spirit in a unique and unrepeatable way at Pentecost. 
Remember, Jesus had told his followers, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. And fifthly, the ascension guarantees our heavenly home. I've gone through that very, very quickly. But each of these pieces of that puzzle are of tremendous importance and worthy of our further consideration. So if a little boy was to come to me, an intelligent, thoughtful little fellow or a thoughtful little girl, and say to me, Pastor, uh, I listened to you as best as I could. I didn't get all that stuff uh, that you were mentioning, the coffee stuff, but I, I think I got most of it. But what is Jesus doing now in the light of his ascension? That'd be a good question, wouldn't it? In fact, if you haven't thought it, you missed your childhood. (laughs) Or you were dumber than you thought. (laughs) So let me tell you not everything that Jesus is doing on the authority of the Bible, but this is important for us if we're going to have a terrific Tuesday. Because it's very hard to have a terrific Tuesday or a magnificent Monday or a wonderful Wednesday. When you allow yourself to be completely flooded by news that comes at you 24 hours a day from people trying to think up stuff to talk about. And from a perspective that is entirely, almost entirely, counter to a Christian and biblical worldview. That's why it's so wonderful to be able to begin a day and to open our Bibles at Psalm 46 and say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, logical deduction, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains be cast into the midst of the sea. This is how we're going to deal with the hurricane coming up the East Coast. This is how we theologize it. And Mother Nature has got nothing to do with it. She doesn't exist. God is sovereign over these things. So what is Jesus doing? Number one, He is presiding over the universe. He is presiding over the universe. Try try that for size in the average average department of sociology at at, at Boston U or whatever it is. is. Excuse me, sir. I just wanted to say to you that uh, I appreciate your sociological perspective, but there's just something you've forgotten. Uh, Jesus Christ, the ascended king, is presiding over the whole universe. He is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Really? Secondly, he is ruling his church. He is ruling his church, Ephesians 1. He is appointed to be head over everything. No popes, no councils, no presbyteries, no deacons' courts. Just to contextualize. (laughs) Are in charge of the church. Christ rules over the church. He mediates his rule through godly men. He directs his church through his word. And today, he rules, presides over the universe, rules over the church. He, thirdly, enters into our struggles and sympathizes with us in our weakness. That's what he's doing today. Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is distant and remote from us. We have one who is touched with all the feelings of our infirmities. As the, whole, the old hymn puts it, there's no throb nor throw that our heart can know, but he feels it above. That in itself is absolutely incomprehensible and yet completely wonderful. Fourthly, he is interceding for us. Romans 8, 
Again, Hebrews 9, now to appear for us in God's presence. To appear for us in God's presence. Now, this might be a coffee break. I don't know, but let me say this, and I'll come just to a word or two of encouragement as we go. The ascension is not part of the atonement. It was not his glorified body that he offered to God. It was his physical body through death on the cross. He made one sacrifice for sins forever. Jesus' position in heaven is glorified and exalted and is God's guarantee of the eternal effectiveness of the Son's finished work. With all that said, let's just come back to our disciples here and see how they reacted to this and see if we don't find in them the way in which we should react as well. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then, then, they worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. First of all, they responded in adoration. In adoration. Then, in exultation, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This little phrase is a looking phrase, isn't it? You should remember it with great joy. Megaline Karan. You have it in the arrival of Jesus, in the incarnation, in the singing of the angels. It is with great joy. Good news of great joy for all people. You say, well, that's fine. I get that. They have it that Jesus ascends. And so they say, this is terrific. Let's, let's sing a few songs. Let's sing how great thou art. And, uh, and let's get on with our day. Doesn't this surprise you? You see, if you're not surprised by this, you don't get it. He had to tell them again and again, no, it's much better if I go away. How could it be better if you go away? I don't want my wife to go away. I love my wife. I don't want my kids to go away. I like to be with my kids. I don't want my best friends to depart from me. If they're away from me, it's not as good as it would be if they were with me. So how can it possibly be? And what is it then that allows them to now worship and to return to Jerusalem with great joy? Why are they not brokenhearted? The thought of Christ's departure had scared them. If they'd been told that on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, they would have rejoiced and exulted in this way, they would have dismissed the notion. But now they get it. This isn't defeat. This is victory. Back into Jerusalem they go, singing, No more we doubt thee, glorious Prince of life. Life is not without thee. Aid us in our strife. Make us more than conquerors through your selfless love. Bring us safe to Jordan, to our home above. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. Endless is the victory. You or death have won. Their response is adoration, it is exaltation, and finally, it is preparation. Preparation. Jesus says to them, Now, fellas, you've got a lot to do, Acts 1, but I don't want you just busting into Jerusalem prematurely. I want you to wait. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then go. 
And so there we have them, waiting, worshiping, and witnessing. Waiting, worshiping, witnessing. Well, isn't that our role? We wait, not for the giving of the Holy Spirit, for that has been given. We wait for the return of this ascended King in power and in great glory. In the meantime, we worship Him in life, in deed, in song, in praise, in the reorientation of our thinking from a godless perspective to thinking biblically, in our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. We wait, we worship, and we tell the whole world about this. I don't know how many of you were reading the, uh, I can't even pronounce the word, from the ses, ses, set, yeah, whatever that is, you, the, the, the big book that you have in there. I was tempted to steal it with all those lovely pictures of your president, but I left it behind for now. <laughs> I, did, I did steal the, uh, the, the theological journal, though it's in my briefcase, and I'm going to ask if I can have it. <laughs> Um, on the Puritans. But um, what what I loved as I scanned through that just this morning when I was drinking coffee was to see right at the the heart of this whole place is, is the fact, the understanding, the clear, unequivocal understanding that if we, if we lose, if we lose an understanding of the evangel, then the passion for world missions is quenched. It is our grasp of and our being grasped by the magnitude of the gospel, Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended, Christ returning. We say, well, let's get out of here. Let's tell Kentucky about this Jesus. Let the pessimist look down. Let the fearful look around. But let the Christian lift his eyes and look up. Christ is our ascended King. Amen. A moment of silence, and then we'll be led in a song.